0: Good evening, welcome to Grace United Reformed Church. We're going to sing our song service this evening from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Um, I'm not going to do a choose your own from this book yet, just because I don't think everybody's figured out their favorite numbers, but uh, coming soon, hopefully we'll be able to do that as people get more familiar with the book. Um, But let's start with number 351, 351, all three of 351. Next, let's sing number 446. 446. Let's sing the first two and last two. First two and last two of 446. Now over to 473, 473, let's sing all three. number we'll sing number 520 520 let's sing all three of this one as well
1: Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let us ask God to do that, to enable us to give Him the praise and the worship that He deserves as we join our hearts in a moment of silent prayer. Father, you have gathered us once more this day, that we might give you the worship you deserve. Enable us to do so with wholehearted joy, your spirit guiding and leading us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let us sing praise together to the Lord from number 306 in our Psalter hymnal, 306. O praise ye the Lord. We join our hearts and lips with the church the world over in confessing him using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 119, verses 97 through 112. Now, these two stanzas of Psalm 119 speak first to us of God's law as the source of wisdom. You think in this world of where men look for wisdom, they look to philosophers and scholars. They look to, some of them, the aged, and some of them, the young influencers. But the psalmist reminds us that true wisdom isn't rooted in men. Whether the old or the young, whether the popular or the hidden, men lack wisdom unless their wisdom is rooted in the Word of God. And so that's where he turns He seeks his understanding, his truth, in the unchanging truth of God. And then the second stanza points out that that word in which we find wisdom is also our sure guide. Men on every side may afflict and torment, but God's word provides safety and life and joy and guidance, the likes of which no man can provide. All of that points us to Christ. He's the one who who unlocks this word and fulfills this word and uses this word to draw us into his kingdom, which is the kingdom that triumphs over all the kingdoms of men. Christ is the fulfillment of and the embodiment of the word of God in which we find our wisdom, our guidance, and our life. The psalmist writes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Amen. Let's take up the first stanza that we just read there, which we find in Selection M of Psalm 119 from our Trinity Psalter hymnal. stanza or Selection M of Psalm 119. As we pray this evening, just a reminder in our announcement bulletin, there's a prayer request for Pastor Colin Welch and the work in Madison, Indiana, uh, which has been growing, which is a blessing, but which also now needs a new place to worship, which is difficult. So please pray for the work in Madison. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, you are indeed the source of all wisdom, knowledge, and truth. On every side, men seek to understand the world while steadfastly ignoring you, pretending that you don't exist, pretending that they can understand the world that points to you without any reference to you. Father, Teach us to not follow their ways. Enable us to be strong in recognizing the importance of acknowledging you in all that we do. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom that is hidden from an unbelieving world. The wisdom that recognizes that you made the world and everyone in it for your good purposes and for your glory. And that you have been working all of history to the end. That your people might be gathered together, that your name might be glorified, and that the kingdom of God might fill all. Lord, we pray that you would speed the day when that occurs. But until it does, we pray that you would strengthen Bless and nurture your church. Father, we look at your church in this land and we, we grieve. Where once the gospel was faithfully proclaimed in numerous places in every town, now we find many places where the word is not proclaimed at all or where people gather not out of conviction and, and confidence in you, but out of habit and tradition to hear the false wisdom of men rather than the powerful word of God. Father, we pray that you would renew and restore the church in this land. Cause your people to return to their first love, recognizing that the church is nothing if not the place where those who love you as your beloved children congregate to worship you, to hear your word, to be discipled and built up and matured in Christ. Make them to be passionate about learning your will and applying it to all of life, so that when they go forth from the gathering of the saints, Your people might be transformed and energized and eager to do your will. And Lord, we pray that you would purify your church. Where there are those who preach a compromised gospel, we pray that you would turn them in repentance or replace them. We pray that the ministers of your word might be passionate about about studying and understanding and applying Your Word to the lives of Your people. That the elders whom You raise up would be passionate about discipling Your people, walking alongside of them in that path of repentance and discipleship, calling them to a a renewed devotion to You. That the deacons whom You raise up would lead us in serving You wholeheartedly with all of the gifts and all of the opportunities You have bestowed. That the parents would raise up their children to know and to love the Heavenly Father who has claimed them as His own. That the children would rise up eager to know and to learn and to be more faithful than their parents have been. And Lord, make Your church to understand its purpose, to be bold, to disciple the world, And to call those who don't yet know to to know and to to serve the true King, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would so invigorate your church. That it would be newsworthy. That you would send your spirit forth with great power. To make your people passionate. Passionate about living in a way that, that honors you. Because we know that if you do that, it will change the way they work, it will change the way they speak, it will change their marriages, it will change their families, it will change their entertainment, it will change everything about us. And the world will notice. And Lord, we pray for our nation as a whole. We have been blessed richly in this place. And yet we grieve to see what this land is becoming. We grieve to see how the educational system by and large has sought to deny you and to undermine the truth about you. We grieve to see how movements are arising to replace you with the false god of socialism or with the false god of racial equity or with the false god of of liberalism. And how movements like transgenderism and alternate sexualities seek to obliterate the image of God in man. And how abortion, the abortion lobby and abortion advocates seek to destroy the image of our creator from the very bearers of it in the womb. Lord, we grieve over these open rebellions against you. And we pray that you would work in the hearts of many a a recognition of the ugliness and the misery of such sin that they might long for something better and that they might see that something better in your church. Lord, we pray that you would turn this nation and not just this nation, but this world. There are multitudes dying in the darkness following false gods like Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and humanism in the Middle East, in Africa, in China, in Europe, and even in America. Lord, we pray that you would would send your spirit forth to turn them out of the darkness and unto the light. And Lord, we thank you that you are raising up your church, that you're raising it up in places like Madison, Indiana where Brother Welch is pastoring a growing group. We're so thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful for the uh, large number of children and families that you brought among them. And we pray that you would continue to provide for them, to strengthen them, to disciple the saints in that place. And Lord, multiply such works. Multiply the proclamation of your gospel, not just in this land, but throughout the world. Raising up men who would proclaim the gospel fiercely and earnestly and making your people who already have been gathered to be passionate about living the life of disciples father you have given us many opportunities in this congregation to be refined as you have called us out of our comfort zones through disease and illness through grief and struggle through a revelation of our sins from which we need to repent, through conflicts that lead us to self-evaluation, Lord, we pray that you would use all of these difficulties as opportunities for us to turn to you, for our faith to be deepened and strengthened, for our relationship with you to grow and become passionate, Father, we pray your blessing upon each one who stands in need. We thank you for the good blessings that you've given to many with with healing, with diagnoses, with treatments. We pray that you would provide comfort and encouragement for those who remain in the valley of their need, wondering what the outcome will be of their diagnosis, of their disease, of their struggle, of their grief. But Lord, help each one to see, regardless of the struggle they're facing, that you are always walking with us, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley, that you have always been providing the way before us, ensuring that we don't get stuck in the dark, that we don't find ourselves alone, but that through each valley we are guided to your side and that you lead us to quiet waters and green pastures. Enable us to minister to one another, Lord, comforting those who grieve, encouraging those who worry, admonishing those who stray, and welcoming those who return. Lord, we pray that you would provide within the hearts of each one exactly what they stand in need of, that their faith might grow, that their relationship with you might deepen. We pray in particular for those who have strayed, for our member under discipline, for those who are not in worship, for those who are living in sin. Lord, we pray that you would Enable them to put you first. To recognize that there is no hope apart from you. But to see that when our identity is focused on, surrounded by Christ, we have a hope that transcends anything this world can know. Father, we thank you for your word which guides us and leads us, even in the midst of affliction. We thank you for the sure hope of your gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would keep each one of us focused from the heart outward on your sovereignty, on your goodness, on your grace, and on the certainty that you have already won the victory for us. Now we pray all of this, Lord, with thanksgiving that you love us, that you have called us, and that you are ever with us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word, let's stand and sing the second stanza from Psalm 119 that we read. We can find that in Selection N from the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, 119N. This one will be familiar to you um, since it's also in our blue Psalter Hymnal. We'll sing all four stanzas. Well, our sermon text this evening is Lord's Day 33 from our Heidelberg Catechism, but I'd like to read first with you um, two relatively brief passages. The first truly is brief. It's uh, Mark 8, verses 31 to 35. And then uh, I'd like to read the first half of the chapter, give or take, um, of Romans 8. So, Mark 8, verses 31 to to 35. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Amen. Turning then to Romans 8. Romans 8, the first 14 verses. I have in the bulletin we'd start at verse 5, but I'd like to start at verse 1. It kind of reminds us where we are, who we are. In Christ. Starting at verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Amen. Now, the truths that we find in those passages, and many like them, lead us to what we confess in Lord's Day 33. This is the second Lord's Day in that final section of our catechism that talks about our response to the gospel, our our life lived in answer to what Christ has done for us. And what it asks us there, four simple questions. The first one is, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? And it tells us that there are two things. First, the dying away of the old self, and then the, the coming to life or the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, and more and more to hate it and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ. Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Well, that leads to the question, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for His glory. Not those based on our own opinion or on human tradition. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have to confess... I like closure. I like completion. I like seeing a job done and put away. And so it's a struggle for me when I have a project that goes on and on and on and on. God, however, does not seem to feel the same. Last week, we noted that the faith by which Christians embrace Christ is a faith that expresses itself unmistakably. Because our faith comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, invariably, it will be accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit as He leads us to reveal the fruit of His presence and to reject the works of the flesh. thing is, that expression of the Holy Spirit's presence isn't something we can do and be done with. It's not a task on a checklist that we can cross off and say, Whoo, we're done with that, move on to the next thing. It's a process that is ongoing, which continues throughout the life of each Christian. In other words, there is no such thing as completing that project while we're in this life. Until Jesus comes back, or we go to Him through death, we will be continuing that process, which our catechism calls conversion. That's hard for some of us, but it's a good thing because it fills our lives with opportunities to learn anew how to love the Lord, how to trust the Lord, how to cast ourselves at His feet. And it's to help us explore that reality that our forefathers gave us Lord's Day 33. Here we discover that the surest evidence of saving faith is a life that is filled constantly with the work of conversion. And so that's our theme this evening. The sure evidence of true faith is a life of constant conversion. The sure evidence of true faith is a life of constant conversion. That conversion to which we're called, that conversion that should fill our lives, has both a negative and a positive side. And so we start with the negative side... Noting that our lives should be filled with a conversion causing the death of the old sinful self. But that's a strong way of putting it, isn't it? Causing the death of the old self. We should never speak lightly of death. So we need to ask, why does our old self deserve to die? Children, remember, we were created at the very start of to serve and to glorify God. We were the last part of His creation. And He made us for the goal that we would exercise dominion, that we would rule the world on His behalf, that we would mold and shape and develop the world in a way that would point even more earnestly and openly than it already did toward him who made it all and to that end he caused us to bear his image so that all of our gifts all of our abilities all of our character was able to point to him but then sin entered the picture and it corrupted us ruined us for that purpose sin turned our hearts and minds to rebellion it refocused our hearts, not on God, but on ourselves, on our desires, on our wants, on our glory. Romans 8 uses the term, the flesh. And not in a good way. In that text, the flesh refers to that which belongs to the world in its fallenness. The flesh comprises the desires and the passions of the physical body. The flesh refers to our sinful focus on ourselves. My desires, my feelings, my honor. The flesh stands in opposition to our calling to focus ourselves to live for the Lord. Adam's sin led to our corruption and to focusing us from the start on the flesh. And those fleshly desires which fill us from our earliest days are contrary to our true purpose. We heard it in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That focus on the flesh is that which fills us with a longing for the thrill of the moment. Living for that, that dopamine rush. It's that which preoccupies us with a desire for meeting our own needs, putting ourselves first, getting the glory for me. That focus on the flesh sets us at odds with God and His purpose for us. It's the mindset, the heart orientation of a rebel in its ugliest sense. Never do those who are living for the flesh spend themselves for serving the Lord. Their focus is always on themselves, on their wants, their needs, their offense, their reputation. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You see it all around you. It's the, the person who so quickly jumps to offense as soon as someone says something which could maybe possibly be construed as pointing at them. That person who is so quick to take credit and so slow to take blame Who spends themselves and all that they have in order to get experiences or toys or whatever their heart desires. But they think nothing of those around them. Whether their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends, even their spouses. Romans 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That should silence us. Those who are in the flesh, those who are living for themselves, those who are oriented around me, my, I, cannot please God. Now from the start, God warned, sin has as its cost death. Death, the separation from God and from His blessings, must come in answer to sin. That's what God warned in Genesis 2, verse 17. That's what he reiterates in places like Romans 6, verse 23. And therefore we read in in uh, Romans 8, The mind set on the flesh is death. And again in verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. As long as we live devoted to the flesh, fulfilling our desires, living for right now, to thine own self be true, being our motto. As long as we remain devoted to the flesh, death is what we deserve. Death is how we live. It surrounds us. It infuses us. And death is where we're headed. Now Jesus frees us from death. All by his lonesome. We don't contribute anything to it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He did it all. He saved us utterly of Himself. And it's a comprehensive salvation. God has done what the law could not do. By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. You get that? He came as a man. And in the likeness of sinful men. To be condemned for us who are sinful men. And He did it all, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The justice He endured is attributed to us. The righteousness He attained is likewise attributed to us who have faith in Him. All that we need, Jesus accomplished it. All that we must do is trust Him, have faith in Him, period. But He loves us far too much to leave us in our sin. How ugly, how incongruous that would be. If there was no condemnation for us, if we were rescued from death, but we still lived the life of death, the life of the flesh. If we were assured of heaven, but we were still living the life of a rebel. If we were assured of a life, an eternity with God, for whom we never lived. Of whom we never thought. To whom we never look. How ugly, how wrong that would be. And so he doesn't just promise us salvation out there later on. He promises us to he promises us deliverance from the flesh, from the ways of death even now. Now there's a positive side to that, and that positive side is glorious, it's wonderful, but it starts with the negative side, which is that that flesh, that selfishness, that rebellious heart needs to die. That's what sin deserves, that's what rebellion deserves, and that's what our old man needs. If the new life of Christ is to flourish in us, then the old life of the flesh needs to die. That's why Jesus said the rather shocking words, and they were shocking words. We hear them so often we we aren't shocked by them anymore, but they are. In Mark 8... Peter was shocked. Jesus said that he had to suffer and die. And Peter saw absolutely no way. He understood death. And he saw no way that death could possibly have a good side. It could possibly bring a benefit. So he rebukes Jesus, which is rather bold. And Jesus rebukes him right back. Because he was thinking like a man. He wasn't understanding things in the light of God and who God is. He didn't recognize that unless Jesus died, we couldn't truly live. But then he says, you know what? There's death also in discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you get what he's saying there? Let him deny himself. That is, everything for which you formerly lived. Your reputation, your desires, your goals, your plans, your purpose... Your glory, deny it, get rid of it. That's not who you are. I must not live for Doug and for the life of Doug and the glory of Doug. I must be wrapped up, all my identity in Christ. That means I deny that old self and take up my cross. What is a cross? It is an instrument designed to bring about slow, prolonged death. And that's how he's using it. Now, in Roman crucifixion, the one who carried the cross was the one who was sentenced to die. Why should the soldiers work at carrying that heavy cross when they can use it to weaken the one who's about to die? So, when Jesus says, Take up your cross, he's saying, Take up your own destruction. That is the destruction of the flesh, the destruction of the rebellion, the destruction of the selfish, sinful desires that once thrived within you. And even those of us who've never known a time when we didn't identify ourselves as a Christian, we still have that old, sinful, rebellious side. You know how I know that? Because every one of us, as kids, disobeyed our parents. Stole toys from our siblings. Lied, even though we knew we'd been caught red-handed. Every one of us. That's the old side. That's the flesh. And that needs to be crucified. Now crucifixion doesn't kill like a bullet. It doesn't kill immediately. It's a prolonged process of weakening and weakening further and weakening even further until finally the last breath is drawn. And that's what needs to happen to our sinful selves. What does that look like? Well, it looks like what Answer 89 tells us in our catechism. It's learning to be genuinely sorry for sin. More and more coming to hate it and to run away from it. That sounds innocuous, but it's not. Because that sin is bound up with who we are. It's that self-glorification That desire for my will will to be done. Even at the expense of those closest to us. That demand that you give way to my will. That you apologize while I don't. That you change because I'm going this way. And we need to start learning to start recognizing the sinfulness, the ugliness, the evil of that. Becoming sorry for it because it offends God. Because it overturns His purpose for us, His image in us. We need to learn to hate it as that which obscures and distorts the image of God in us. And we need to learn to flee from it doing absolutely everything we can to reject sin. If you young people hear this, if you understand how ugly your sin is to God, if you understand that it is the way of death, that those who live according to the flesh cannot please God, then you will do whatever you can to start getting rid of it. If that means changing your job, if that means changing your friends, if that means getting rid of your smartphone, if that means changing the way you spend your time, you will do that to flee from that which is so abhorrent to God, to flee from that which is so contrary to what you are called to be. But when we start doing that, becoming sorry for our sin, hating it, fleeing from it, we're dying to the flesh. Our old man is being crucified. And it's making way for the new man in the image of Christ. And we need to talk about that. But quick a minute, how do we do this? I mean, we can, it's rather easy to say, you need to crucify the old flesh. Okay, go do that. How do we do that? I mean, ultimately, obviously, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? We won't hate our sin, much less turn away from it, unless he's at work within us. But yet he calls us to be active in it. So how do we do that? We spend time here in the Bible because the more time we spend in the Bible the more we learn who God is and what He's like and what He's done for us and what He has in store for us and the more we learn about God the more we will come to love Him The more we will come to be appreciative, overwhelmingly thankful for all that he has done and is doing for us, the more devoted to him we will be, the more we will long to reflect him to a watching world. And the more we come to love and to understand God, the uglier and the more obvious our sin will become. So we need to spend time in that word. And we need to spend time on our knees asking God to to let us not not just academically understand it, but to apply it, a practice that I've found exceedingly helpful over the last year or so. Every morning I read somewhere between three and five passages of Scripture, usually a chapter in each of them. Um, you can find Bible apps online that will keep you accountable for doing that. It seems like a lot. It's really not. But the last step in the app that I've been using is, what did you learn? you got to write at least a paragraph on what you learned. It forces you to stop and think and digest and meditate on the glory and the goodness of God that has been revealed to you or the depth and the ugliness and the evil of the sin that it's revealed in you. And the more you spend time doing that prayerfully, asking God to reveal to you what needs to change, what needs to be cast off, the more you will come to hate that sin, the more you will take the steps to flee from it. But you need to spend time in that word and you need to spend time with one another. We have a, two groups of ladies that meet, well, I think they're done for the season, but they normally meet every two weeks to study the Bible together. The one that meets in the morning, it always amazes me. I try not to eat lunch until they leave and sometimes I end up getting rather hungry because they spend time encouraging each other reminding each other asking each other for prayer there's a men's group that meets every first and third friday of the month and does the same thing studies through some scripture and a book that edifies us and then we spend time in fellowship that's essential we're not meant to grow alone we're part of the body And the more time we spend with brothers and sisters in the Lord, the more we want to become like them as they're becoming like God, and the more we're willing to trust them and to ask them for help in casting off those sins that once held us captive, that fleshly side of us that is so attractive when we're alone, but so ugly when we're surrounded by the body of Christ. We need to spend time in the Word. We need to spend time with God's people. And we need to recognize the the ugliness of that sin because only then will we be willing to cast it off. Jesus says whoever would save his life, that is his old life, his fleshly life, whoever would save his life will lose it. We're all dying. This life is fatal. All those passions, all those pastimes, Like that, they're gone. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Because that life is eternal. That life has no end. That life has a joy and a glory that is utterly without end. And that leads us to the other side. Having begun to work at casting off the flesh, casting off the old man onto its cross, we're called to cultivate the life of the new Christ-like self. Nature abhors a vacuum and so does the human heart. There's a warning that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 11 that should sober us. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, Jesus says, it pauses or passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. I don't want to dwell on this overly much, but understand what that's saying. It's saying if you repent, but that's it. You put off that old sin, but you don't put on godliness. You cast off those Habits of rebellion, those fleshly habits, but you don't put on new habits of godliness, new accountability with brothers in Christ. Then those sins that disappeared, that you cast off, they're going to come back and find a house that's been swept and put in order. And rather than one sin, one rebellion, one evil spirit, you will find eight an overabundance filling up the void. To guard against that we need to not only cast off the old but also cultivate something glorious and new. For those who are in Christ, our desires and our motives are changing. This is our new reality. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That's true for all who are trusting in Christ, and that reality transforms the focus of our hearts. Verse 5, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. It's one or the other. Whereas once we were filled with misery, we lived for our sin, we hated God, we sought rebellion. Now, because of Christ, now we live for Him. Now we're identified by Him. Now we seek after the things that speak of, that breathe of, that reflect Him. What's that look like? Answer 91 shows us. What are the good works that we're to fill our lives with? What are the good works that reflect the character of Christ in us? And it identifies them; those, those good works, that Christ-like life, according to three criteria. The first is, it flows from faith. Faith is always, for the Christian, the starting point. Romans 14, verse 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Because if it doesn't arise from faith, then it arises from our old man. And our old man was a rebel. Our old man was set against God. But on the other hand, John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So is your faith real? Well, if you truly believe that God loves you, if you truly believe that God sent His Son to die for you, that you might have life, right? If that's what you believe, then does it not make sense that he who gave the ultimate gift to save you from hell, everything else he gives you is going to be for your good too? And if that's the case, then doesn't it follow that when he gives you commands, those commands are for your good, even if they're hard, even if they're not exactly what you want to hear, right? Maybe he knows better than you do. Certainly he knew better than you did in sending Christ. You would have sought to save yourself. He said, no, you can't do that. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do everything and I will deliver you from condemnation. I will reconcile you to myself. Now you think, well, this is good for me. This is what I should pursue. He says, no. Do this instead. If we truly... Trust him. If we truly believe that he has our best interests at heart, we will believe him when he con- condemns something that it's wrong for us. We will believe him when he commends something that it's right for us. We will believe that he's going to equip us for whatever situation he leads us into. We will believe that he's going to use us in a way that honors him. Having faith in Christ means not only having salvation, but following wherever he leads whether he leads you into a new and challenging work, or he leads you into humbling and hard forms of service, or he leads you into difficult times of change and transformation. Now, you won't embrace those hard things if you're trusting in you. But if you're trusting in him, then you'll embrace those as a gift from him, trusting that he knows what he's doing. And not only... Will this Christ-like life flow from true faith? It will also conform to God's law. So much of life, God's guidance for us is circumstantial, right? He sets an open door before us. Should I walk through it? Should I not? He puts the possibility of a relationship before us. Should I embrace it or should I not? So often that requires sanctified wisdom, right? Lots of prayer, lots of wrestling with yourself. But God's law, God's law is what gives us the wisdom to make those choices. God's law is what forms us and molds us and shapes us so that we think about those choices in a way that reflects God's thoughts. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law of God, contrary to what some falsely say, is not contrary to the gospel. It does not stand at odds with the gospel. The gospel and the law are brothers, sweetly cooperating to transform not just the eternal end, but also the present life of the believer. And so Jesus says there, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you would have wisdom for leading your life in a way that brings forth the Christ-like character to which you've been called, then you need to be spending time studying the law of God. Why is it that we read the Ten Commandments every single week? It's because God gave these as a touchstone for enabling us to evaluate all of the nuances of life. So often life is filled with nuances. But these ten give us a means of evaluating them all. Discerning what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. Likewise, the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These enable us to evaluate life and to choose wisely what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what will honor God, what will dishonor Him. And not just there. If you're reading through this word, if you're spending time in it, you'll come upon all these case laws in... um, Exodus through Deuteronomy. Laws that applied directly to Israel of old. Do they apply here and now? Well, yeah. Not in the way they used to, not as a civil code for society, but in the sense that they help us to apply concretely those original ten, those big two, to the, the nuances of life. When you build a house... Build a fence around the roof. Well, we don't do that anymore because we don't live on the roof. But the principle, protect those around you from that which could harm them insofar as it depends on you. That principle stands. We can learn much from the the laws of God that guide us in a way that reflects the image of Christ and... If we're striving to bring forth that Christ-like life, not only will we be doing so flowing from faith and conforming to God's law, but we'll be aiming in all things for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 implores us, whatever you eat or whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is absolute, isn't it? see, that's the heart and soul of the the reason for our being. Everything you do, you do for a particular purpose. But really, there's only two possible purposes. Whether you're washing dishes or getting a college education. Whether you're saving someone's life or sweeping the floor you're going to be motivated by one of two desires, either to glorify God in that which you are doing or to glorify anyone or anything else. Either to honor and serve God or any other purpose. That's the only two. Because whether you're serving self or family or community or country or ideology or whatever, if it's not aiming at the glory of God, it's rebellion. If it's not aiming at the glory of God, it's not Christ-like. If it's not aiming at the glory of God, it is falling short of the purpose for which you were made and it is unbefitting the life of a Christian. Well, oh, pastor, really, how do I wash dishes for the glory of God? You do the best possible job you can do. You do it without complaining. And you go beyond what you're required to do. And in your heart, you pray that God would be glorified through this. You don't go out and say, hey, look, did you see I did all the dishes? Did you notice? Mm -mm. That's aiming for glory for me. Or you don't say, yep, an American knows how to do the dishes. No, that's aiming for glory for your country. But you do it all for the glory of God, praying that he would be honored in it. Because that's what the Lord did. That's what Christ did. And that's the greatest Calling that you could possibly, be, possibly have. My friends, understand. This conversion to which we're called is a process. It's not something that can be accomplished overnight. In fact, it will not be completed until our life is at its end, either at our death or at Christ's return. But that is why, hear this, that is why God gave this life to us. That we might learn day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, how to love and serve Him. That we might gain a heartfelt gratitude for all that he has done. That we might begin hating the sin and the rebellion of the flesh that once filled us. And that we might long for that holy, spirit-filled life which will reflect Christ and honor God in every detail, even the most minute. That's why we're here. That we might be transformed into the image of Christ That we might be prepared for our calling in eternity. That we might be equipped to honor God there as he deserves. That's why we're here. So let us embrace that process eagerly today. And if we aim to, if we pray for God's success in doing so, then he will bring about, day by day, the death of that old man of the flesh And the coming to life of that new man in the image of Christ. And he will be glorified through you, his sons and daughters in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us beyond all measure in the salvation that you've given us, in the presence of your Spirit who transforms us, in the law which gives us guidance. And the fellowship of the saints that encourages and strengthens us. Father, enable us to use all of this. To embrace that life-encompassing process of conversion. That our old sinful self might daily die. And our new Christ-like self might flourish. And that through us, you would be glorified. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song of response is from Trinity Psalter Hymnal 500. Hymn number 500, Father, I know that all my life, we'll sing all the stanzas. This evening is for the work of, uh, of Brother Dave Means. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have been using Brother Means in a way that, um, that leads others to you. Both in his evangelistic work and training others to do evangelism. And in the works that he has written, which lead men to study your word and apply it to their lives. Father, we pray that this offering would support and further that work, that you might be foremost on the minds and hearts of many. And may these gifts be given in faith, out of gratitude for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen. Our offering song this evening is number 83 from our Blue, Trid- or Blue Psalter Hymnal. Um, we're going to sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, 6, and 7.